Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Climate negotiators gather in China. It's a first for the People's Republic, which leads the world in greenhouse gas emissions and clean energy projects. They're looking at the United States and seeing there are growing dependence on foreign sources of oil. They are trying to avoid that situation and to ensure their own energy independence. Also, think globally, act locally. The world throws a party to clean up the planet. And superhero Captain Planet and his team of kids tackle the task, too. All right, let me get this straight. Your name is Gaia, and you're the spirit of the Earth? And you brought us here to help you save Earth from being ruined? Yes, that's about the size of it. Happy birthday, Captain Planet. The eco-warrior turns 20. These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Last year, at the U.N. climate talks in Copenhagen, nations failed to agree to a new treaty limiting greenhouse gases. Now Christiana Figueres, the new head of the U.N. climate process, is lowering expectations for future negotiations. One of the major mistakes that we all bought into is the myth of the Big Bang Theory in climate. But what is clear is that this planet is not going to be saved by any Big Bang agreement. Not in Copenhagen, not this year, not next year. And not in Tianjin, China, where Figueres and negotiators are meeting at the moment. This is the first time China's hosting climate talks, and it's the last meeting before the big UN meeting in Cancun later this year. Barbara Finnamore, China Program Director for the Natural Resources Defense Council, says the China site has symbolic and substantial meaning. To my mind, this is a significant signal by China that it wants to play an active and responsible role in the ongoing climate negotiations. I think others after Copenhagen had questions about China's role. So I believe this is an effort for China to project its image as a country who is seriously committed to the international negotiations and to reducing its own carbon emissions. Well, China has recently become the world's number one emitter of greenhouse gases, and it does have a very ambitious set of targets, but they're not the traditional targets that we've come to understand. These are different. That's right. These are carbon intensity targets, which are a commitment to reduce carbon emissions per unit of GDP. It's very difficult for a rapidly developing economy like China to set absolute targets because of the uncertainty surrounding its economic growth. But they believe that this target will allow them to slow down the growth in its carbon emissions while continuing to allow it to develop its economy, where so many people are still earning the average of $2 U.S. a day. I understand that this upcoming discussions in China is about having a cap-and-trade program and a carbon tax, both things which seem politically DOA, dead on arrival in the United States at this point. (laughs) 
Isn't that interesting? In China, it is, in fact, the subject of an intense debate because many experts believe that that's an efficient way to cut carbon emissions in various sectors. They have, in fact, done something else that is, as you say, DOA. In the United States, they raised the gasoline tax as a way to cut the carbon emissions from the rapidly growing transportation sector. So what they're doing nationally has almost nothing to do with what's the pressure from the international community. They're changing their economy over to a clean economy because it's good business. Because it's good business. They also feel it's very important to cut the serious health impacts from China's heavy reliance on coal. They're also looking at the United States and seeing there are growing dependence on foreign sources of oil. They are trying to avoid that situation and to ensure their own energy independence. Is China not just showing that it's committed to the U.N. process, but is it assuming a leadership position now that the United States has seemingly backed off of the U.N. process? China would like to assert its leadership position. I think that's one of the reasons why it has offered to host this meeting. But on the other hand, it's also taken a role as a leader of the developing world, the G77, as it were. For example, China is pushing for more details on how the funding for financial and technical assistance to developing countries are going to be managed. So that is really the main form of leadership that China is trying to assert. Many people look back on the Copenhagen meeting, which had hoped to come up with an international treaty, did not, came up with the accord, which the United States pushed, which was a voluntary set of standards. Copenhagen was seen as a a make-or-break kind of deal, and it seemed to be to be broke. What are the expectations looking forward for Cancun? I think the expectations for Copenhagen were a bit unrealistic. Most countries and most experts have come to realize now that the way to make progress is to break the problem apart into segments and to work together in smaller groups to reach agreement on the various complex issues that are involved. Ms. Finnemore, um, I think many people who hear conversations about climate change negotiations, their eyes glaze over. This stuff is just kind of happening out there, and it's not consequential, and it's filled with acronyms and details and specifics. <laughs> that may be true. I think for people like that, it's interesting for them to realize that it's not an abstract concept. I think it's also important for people to realize that the whole clean energy market, which some estimates have shown will be a $13 trillion market, it's the most rapidly growing new sector in the world, is going to depend on how well they put the rules in place in their country to put a price on carbon and to adopt aggressive policies for efficiency and renewables. That's what I think the U.S. needs to realize. But I would like to point out that it's really not a situation, I think, where one country will win at the expense of the other. The U.S. and the rest of the world has a stake in helping China to move away from coal and reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. We stand to benefit. Both countries have much to learn from each other, Both countries have much to benefit if China is able to move ahead with its clean energy, renewable energy. It brings down the cost for the rest of the world and enables these new technologies to compete with the real culprit here, the fossil fuel industry. 
Barbara Finnamore is China Program Director in Beijing for the Natural Resources Defense Council. Ms. Finnamore, thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you. On the 10th day of the 10th month of the 10th year, the world is holding a cleanup party. It's organized by 350.org, an international campaign to roll back the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. At last count, we were over 390. More than 5,000 climate events are planned around the world. We use Skype to gather a sampling of the October 10th activities. Hi, my name is Bijal Vachrajani, and uh, I work with 350.org, and I'm based out of Mumbai in India. Oh, there's lots of stuff happening in India right now. Uh, for example, the Raj Bhavan, uh, that's the governor's residence in, in, in Mumbai, they've pledged to go solar uh, during this year at some point. We've got cycle rallies happening in Bombay. In Bangalore, they're going to be street plays by children. In uh, Hyderabad, there's a whole group of college uh, students who are going to clean up the lakes. Campuses across India are also gearing up for the great power race. It's a clean energy competition between students in China, India, and the United States. So the first round was to see which country can sign up the most teams. And right now, India is leading with 410 registrations. Uh, Since we're already leading, let's hope that we keep that lead up and India does win. My name is Aaron Lamer, and I am in Oakland, California. We're pulling together for Get Down and Dirty Oakland, which is going to be a big party in a garden at a school that needs some revitalization. Plus, we're going to be having a big party and concert where we're going to feature local hip-hop artists. We're going to uh, get the word out about some serious threats to climate protection here in California, the most prominent of which is uh, Prop 23, which is an attempt to basically roll back our state's clean air laws and global warming solutions. My name is Carissa. I'm here in Beijing in the People's Republic of China. We're working on a series of events that are pretty focused on waste management. We're hosting the Great Green Race, which is a competition between teams to collect the most matter out of place and create art with it. So it is a competition. We are awarding prizes for whoever can collect the most trash and help us with you know, the sculptures. But the idea is really to bring people together. We're trying to find ways where everyone can participate and collaborate. That's the whole theme of this. My name is Evandro Oliveira, and I'm Portuguese, uh, and I'm based in Berlin. In Europe, we have a lot, a lot of actions. Uh, we have, for instance, in uh, Barcelona, hundreds of people who are expected to take part in a bicycle-powered music festival. And actually, in Edinburgh, in Scotland, who is the city of the pubs, the locals would be throwing a joy cut, and the joy cut is actually the reverse of a boycott, and they will uh, come together at a local bar, and uh, the local bar agreed to put 20% of its revenues on 10-10-10 to making the bar more energy efficient. In Iceland, in Reykjavik, we have citizens who are starting to go on their bikes in their underwear to raise awareness on climate change. And I mean, I have a list that never ends. It's really from, uh, from Russia to Iceland, from uh, Portugal to Kosovo, And uh, it really feels very good what we are uh, adding to. My name is Marcelo Quintanilla. I'm working in Mexico and I'm coordinating the activities for 350 Mexico. Well, we have big plans. Now we have more than 100 events registered in Mexico. Mexico has 32 states and we have at least an event 
in every state. Mexico City is committing to reduce their emissions of CO2 10% for the next year, on 2011. And this is, will be achieved by a 5% commitment making responsible the government. And the other 5% will be responsibility of Mexico City people. For Mexico City, we have this event in Chapultepec, which is the biggest park on Mexico City. And we're having a big concert celebrating with the people this commitment from Mexico City. And the concert will be powered by a solar bus. We have this bus that came in with solar panels and we're going to power all the energy for having this amazing concert for over five hours. I am Sayed Masood from Afghan Youth for Social Development from Kabul, Afghanistan. Our organization will gather a group of dedicated Afghan youth joining the Global Work Party to demand that policymakers get to work too. We have decided that a number of 20 to 30 young Afghans will join us to plant a number of 20 to 30 trees in an effort to raise this awareness. You understand that Afghans are facing a huge number of problems in every sector of their life. But we cannot ignore a very other danger that we will face, if not today, tomorrow, with the greatest impact on our life. That is the climate change. Afghanistan is just one of the 175 countries planning climate action on 101010. See an interactive map at our website, LOE.org. Coming up, a plan to restore the Gulf of Mexico and bridge the financial gulf to do it. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Just ahead, a new plan to make the Gulf of Mexico better than ever. But first, this note on emerging science from Megan Miner. A state-of-the-art theater with surround sound gives the illusion that audio is just behind you, or to the right, or left. In the Grand Theater of the Ocean, sharks experience surround smell. Scientists originally thought sharks used the intensity of smells to locate food. But because smells don't disperse evenly in water, marine biologists in Florida and Massachusetts wondered if this really was how sharks find their prey. The researchers set up an experiment where sharks wore headgear that released scents of different concentrations, one nostril at a time. They found that even when an extremely diluted smell was sent to one nostril before a full-strength odor was sent to the other, the shark turned in the direction of the nostril that sniffed the smell first. This showed that sharks use each of their nostrils independently to pinpoint their food. The finding may help explain why hammerhead sharks are considered the fastest and often the first sharks to reach prey. Hammerheads have nostrils on either side of their head increasing the lag time between scents reaching each nostril, making them faster at honing in on dinner. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Megan Miner. Now that the BP Deepwater Horizon oil well has been killed, how do we keep the Gulf of Mexico alive? That's the fundamental question addressed in a just-released report by Navy Secretary Ray Mabus. President Obama designated the former Mississippi governor to come up with a plan for the long-term recovery of the Gulf Coast after one of the worst environmental catastrophes in the nation's history. Aaron Viles is the campaign director for the Gulf Restoration Network. The conservation group is based in New Orleans. And Mr. Viles, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me. In the introduction to his 126-page plan, Mr. Mabus says, 
and I'll quote, America needs the Gulf. America needs the Gulf to be clean. America needs the Gulf to be healthy. America needs the Gulf to be sustainable. And yet, you know, we've been insulting and injuring the Gulf for decades. Right. Clearly, the BP drilling disaster is not the first time the oil industry has negatively affected the Gulf. It's not the first time we've had a, you know, a crisis, I think, worthy of the nation's attention. But I think it certainly is, with this report, the first time we've seen a very clear vision for national investment in the Gulf of Mexico and in its restoration. And that's, I think, you know, why we're certainly pleased to see it released. Well, let's talk about uh, the report and what it suggests. What are the major findings? What we like about the report is it lays out some very clear principles. Healthy coastal wetlands and barrier shoreline habitats, fisheries that are healthy or fish populations that are healthy and sustainably uh, managed, and more sustainable storm buffers uh, out there for the Gulf, and then inland habitats as well, inland watersheds, which really do drive a lot of the ecological problems in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, that those are healthy and well-managed. So I think they got their arms around all of it as far as the principles, but I think for every plan, what's really important is what comes out of it. Well, action takes money. What I find ironic is, is that this disaster and the money from the disaster could be the silver lining or the, or the gold lining. Yeah, I think that is interesting. There's an irony there. You know, the, the oil and gas industry has been treating the Gulf of Mexico as really a sacrifice zone or a dumping zone for years, for decades. Uh, and now their biggest screw-up ever could actually provide really the resources to jumpstart the restoration and recovery to deal with uh, the legacy down here. So the funding for this will come from the fines that the BP oil company has to pay then? That's what this report envisions. The cleanup money, that's just BP has to spend it. They've got to clean it up and they got to just keep spending the money. But this report envisions Congress directing some of the Clean Water Act fines and penalties to this recovery plan. What are we talking about, bottom line figure? What we do know is that the fines and penalties for what BP has done in the Gulf and, you know, the historic barrels of oil that have been discharged, that could rack up as much as $20 billion in fines and penalties if the Department of Justice aggressively goes after BP for all of them. But, you know, clearly that's a lot of money. Wherever you come from, that's a lot of money. So what's the total cost then of restoring the entire coastline? Do you have a, a guesstimate on that? Well, it is certainly a guesstimate, but what we know is that in Louisiana alone, where our coastal marshes are disappearing or they're degraded, they're falling apart really because of oil and gas and what we've done to the Mississippi River, that crisis alone can cost anywhere from 14 to $100 billion to fix. You add in the other impacts that we're talking about here, you know, clearly $100, 200000000000 billion to really answer the call here and to fix what's broken with the Gulf and make it sustainable again. So now it's up to Congress. They have to uh, approve this plan and accept it? Absolutely. Uh, we need Congress to act. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges, because clearly Congress is wrapped up in lots of stuff. So as we watch the kind of oil disappear to a degree, although we know it's not all gone, there's a lot out there in the water column, and we're going to be dealing with it for years. If the media perception is that it's gone and the media moves on to the next disaster du jour, Congress is not going to have that same sense of urgency, because they're not going to be hearing from you know, outraged people. Uh, and we know that if you look at the, the history of Congress, they seem to respond best to outraged people. And that's something that, you know, we would like to see Congress act as soon as possible. And uh, hopefully, you know, the administration will have some sway left to urge them to do this very thoughtful, very principled thing, which is direct these revenues down here to implement this plan. 
You know, the Walton Family Foundation came up with a bipartisan poll just recently, and and they found that 75% of the people in the region, in the Gulf states, say the feds should play a significant role in the restoration. I found that curious. Well, I think the folks down here, as much as there's an emphasis on local control and local guidance, they understand that with a resource as big as the Gulf, you know, and we've got all five Gulf states engaged in it, and when a crisis like the BP disaster happens, you've got to have a big entity step in to coordinate action. And I think that's what you're seeing with this poll is the public knows it's a big problem, and we've got to get the government engaged here to really commit and see through the, the plan. You've seen disasters come and go. You've seen plans come and go. You getting a little tired of this? There's certainly a a disaster fatigue. And as I spent last night going through this plan, there's certainly the cynical side of me that says, oh, I I feel like I've seen some of this language before. And, you know, the past five years have been rough for the Gulf of Mexico. And we've seen a lot of federal and state collaborative agencies and efforts put together plans. And we've got a lot of paper gathering dust right now. So that, I think, is ultimately... That's the arbiter of whether this was a useful endeavor, is whether we get action. And so that's what we're going to be very focused on. Aaron Viles is the campaign director for the Gulf Restoration Network. Mr. Viles, thanks a lot. Thank you. No motors, no buildings, no trace of human endeavor. Wild. That's what designated wilderness in the United States is supposed to be. But millions of people visit wilderness sites each year. And when they gotta go, they sometimes leave their waste behind. Jason Albert reports from California's Yosemite Valley. Jesse McGahee, dressed in a white hazmat suit, hangs by a thread and looks down 3,000 feet. He's just been lowered over the cliff edge of El Capitan, Yosemite's iconic rock face. McGahee, 32, is Yosemite Park's climbing manager. He's about to descend into Camp 6, a high-altitude rock campsite wedged like a flat table into an open book. Approaching Camp 6. There it is. Nicest bivy on the nose. Yet full of We're going to try to change that right now. This vertical climbing route is called the Nose, and McGahee is calling this mission the Nose Wipe. He and a partner are here to retrieve decades' worth of refuse left by climbers. They fill two bags with over 100 pounds of garbage, climbing gear, even solid human waste. A waiting helicopter sling loads the cargo away and gets a warning about the contents. Far down below in El Capitan Meadow, Ken Yeager recounts how it came to this. He first climbed the nose more than 30 years ago. Now he organizes the Yosemite Facelift, an annual park cleanup. Back then, uh, it was very rare to even have another party on El Capitan, so you didn't have the problems that you run into nowadays. Climbing routes are vertical trails. Deviating from the path is risky. Yet the climbers in the 1970s managed to relieve themselves using an area of the wall away from the main climbing route. Uh, 1980s, 
that's when uh, a lot more people started going up on El Capitan, and so you'd poop in a paper bag, and then they'd uh, try to toss them as far out off the cliff as they can, and the idea being that they'd drop to the base and pick these up after the climb. As climbing use on El Capitan increased, so did waste at the wall's base. Picking up other climbers' food garbage was one thing. Handling anonymous biological waste was another. Uh, it became pretty ugly for a while. So the Park Service mandated climbers pack out their waste. And Yosemite climbing manager, Jesse McGahee, says the great majority do. There is a strong ethic from the climbing community, and they're more self-policing than I am. They started packing out their human waste before we mandated it. It's just that in a rock environment like Camp 6, every individual can have a major impact. You couldn't pick a more beautiful spot to spend an evening on El Cap. And unfortunately, of the whole park, for a campsite, that is the closest thing we have to a garbage dump in wilderness. Part of it is, inexperienced groups come here and get exhausted. Also, no permit is required to climb on El Capitan. So rangers don't really know who's spending the night on the rock. So it's the daily work of Yosemite rangers like Eric Bissell to find climbers in technical terrain and get the word out. We're just going to head up today to uh, check out for trash. And there's a couple parties on the route, so we'll talk to them as we're going and make sure that they uh, have proper waste management equipment with them. A stark contrast lies about 200 miles south, Mount Whitney, the tallest mountain in the lower 48. Diana Pietrosanta is now a deputy district ranger on the Inyo National Forest. She began as a Mount Whitney ranger. Back then, one of her responsibilities was maintaining the two solar toilets on the flanks of the mountain. I sort of went into the job with my eyes wide open, knowing that there were these two toilets along the Whitney Trail, and it would be my responsibility to take care of them or maintain them. But I didn't realize that it was probably the major component of the job at the time. Out of a week, um, I would probably spend at least half my time dealing directly with the toilets. Mount Whitney managers used a progression of toilet designs, all with the same result. Rangers became de facto backcountry sanitation workers, and the human footprint proved massive. A helicopter spent three days every summer season ferrying loads out of the wilderness. It's kind of like if you have a campfire, you don't have a campfire. People will cluster around the campfire, and the toilets were the campfire of the Whitney Trail. So both from a visual and a sensory aspect, you know, it is not normally what you would consider a wilderness experience. So in 2004, at the base of the Mountaineers route to Whitney's Summit, the Forest Service set out a dispenser for free wag bags, specially designed bags for when you have to go. And people use them. Three years ago, Whitney managers were able to take out the last toilets and mandate a pack-it-out policy for the zone's 23,000 climbers and hikers. Okay, have you done the Whitney Trail before? Yes, sir. Oh, good. Day hike? Yes. All right. Unlike at Yosemite, every climber here at Mount Whitney has to get a permit. And to get a permit, they have to have a face-to-face meeting with a wilderness ranger, like Dave Kirk. Don't leave anything in the wilderness. Don't leave any um, litter, clothing, stuff like that. There's the tags. Um, this is the permit. That's, that's an important document, so just keep that with you. Uh, and then human waste disposal. So, wag bags. 
And, uh, yeah, do help us out with this. Um, you know, last year, hikers individually packed out 6,500 pounds off the mountain that would otherwise be under rocks up there. Sure. So just let everyone know they're really, they're really doing their part to protect the wilderness when they use this. Veteran witnesses at Mount Whitney say it has to be this way. Doug Thompson runs the Whitney Portal store at 8,000 feet elevation. It's been a climber's last chance for supplies since 1935. Uh, this is the best balance. Uh, it, it just seems to be the best, the best overall solution. You can't have the rig just manhandle it. Uh, you can't expect somebody else to carry out your waste. Uh, so this puts the responsibility back on the individual. And they always have that choice of there's a lot of places you, you don't need a wag bag. And for climbers, the risk of improper disposal of human waste continues to be real. Ivan Valenta, a climber from Sydney, Australia, and his wife attempted to climb the nose. She actually picked up a wall bug because people do their business on the ledges and stuff like that. I spent the next two days holding a garbage bag under a backside till we could get off. Memorable moment for me. Yet even Valenta's close-up with dysentery didn't cloud his enthusiasm for Yosemite climbing. You don't want it to be stopped and we're not allowed to use it anymore because we're trashing it. So, you know, look after what you've got and you'll be able to come back many times to enjoy it. So next time you head out into the remote beyond, don't be afraid when you find a wag bag dispenser at the trailhead. Ivan, can I come up? For Living on Earth, I'm Jason Albert in Yosemite Valley, California. For a slideshow of Packing It Up at Yosemite, head over to our website, LOE.org. are birds of a feather. They're the same genus, Corvus, and to borrow a punchline from comedian Rodney Dangerfield, both don't get no respect. But there are differences between crows and ravens, and in this bird note, Michael Stein tells us how to tell them apart. You're outside enjoying a sunny day when a shadow at your feet causes you to look up. A large black bird flies over and lands in a nearby tree. You wonder... Is that a crow or a raven? These two species, common ravens and American crows, overlap widely throughout North America, and they look quite similar. But with a bit of practice, you can tell them apart. You probably know that ravens are larger, the size of a red-tailed hawk. Ravens often travel in pairs, while crows are seen in larger groups. Also, watch the bird's tail as it flies overhead. The crow's tail feathers are basically the same length, so when the bird spreads its tail, it opens like a fan. Ravens, however, have longer middle feathers in their tails, so their tail appears wedge-shaped when open. Listen closely to the bird's calls. Crows give a cawing sound. But ravens produce a lower croaking sound. 
Quote the Raven, now you know. Our bird note was narrated by Michael Stein. For photos and more info, flock to our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, the deadly history and lethal legacy of a vital Cold War element, uranium. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI. Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Judy Pasternak, a former investigative reporter with the Los Angeles Times, has written an epic story about U.S. efforts to obtain uranium during the Cold War. Her book, Yellow Dirt, chronicles how mining companies walked away, leaving radioactive ore and tailings behind. And 60 years later, Americans in the Southwest were still being exposed. Judy Pasternak spoke with Living on Earth's Steve Kerwood. You begin your story in Indian country in Arizona in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and you found that some Navajo suspected that they might have some special rocks that outsiders coveted. What did they notice? They noticed these yellow stripes in the rock, powdery yellow stripe. And really, the first people who settled this one valley, that's the central setting for my book, thought that this was gold. So... This is an area that white people call Cane Valley, Mm -hmm. where people had noticed, the Navajo noticed these yellow rocks. And one of your main characters uh, in this this story of yellow dirt tells his children never, ever tell any of the white men about these rocks. But I guess temptation eventually overtakes one of them. (laughs) Yeah, his son, in fact, his favorite son. And that was uh, well before atomic bombs were being developed. But later, during World War II, one of the Indian traders put some rocks, some samples out on his counter. And he told the son, who was a customer, that this could be worth a lot of money. And the son immediately goes out and... Yeah. (laughs) So, yes. So then he gathered up some of these rocks that were on the mesa and brought them in. And it turns out this isn't just any old uranium deposit, Judy, but this is the mother load of powerful uranium, very rich uranium. What, hundreds of mines are blasted and, and tunneled across the land as a consequence of this. Yeah, the Navajo reservation as a whole really has world-class deposits of uranium. And the mesa that rose above Cane Valley was the hottest, richest, most productive uranium mine on Navajo land. We know a fair amount uh, about the miners, the health effects on them, but your book also documents, I think for, well, the first time I've read this, maybe it's another material, about the broad range of suffering that the whole Navajo community suffered as a function uh, of radioactive exposure. Tell us about the watering holes that were left from the surface mining, for example. There were huge open pit uranium mines in the western part of the reservation because the deposit was so shallow they could just blast it right out of the ground. When the mining companies left, according to their contracts, they were supposed to return the land in as good condition as received. But nobody asked them to 
fill in these pits. And what happened was they collected rain. And these pits, some of them were half a mile long. And they looked like lakes in the desert. They looked like oases. So shepherds who were coming by were actually pretty grateful for their presence because all of a sudden here was a water supply in the desert. And so they would drink. They would water their herds there and they would drink themselves. And in Navajo culture, the shepherds are often women, yes? That's right. And some of those women were pregnant. What happened to them? There is a correlation between women who drank contaminated water while they were pregnant and a syndrome that's known as Navajo neuropathy. Children who have this, generally the average age of death is 10. Some lived into their 30s. They had fused, stiffened fingers and toes that were kind of like claws. Many of them had liver damage, and also they had problems with the nerves in their corneas, so it was hard for them to see. The average age of death was 10? That's right. And then abruptly in the late 1960s, the Cold War is over. The government has enough uranium, thank you. Basically, the mines close up. And this is so damning. The government, which is the legal guardian of the tribe, just Mm -hmm. allows these mining companies to walk away. Yeah, that's correct. And the mines themselves, the portals were left open. Anybody could wander in. There were great piles of waste rock around. And there were these large hills or small mountains of sandy waste, radioactive waste. I imagine kids played in this stuff then. That's correct. And they predicted that kids might play on them. And indeed they did. They used to dig caves in them in the summertime. And then in the winter, there were these, they were a wonderful attraction. You know, it was the only place around to go sledding. The way Navajos lived their lives gave them a much greater exposure than people in a town or city would have. They also used the ore because they were very practical and also very poor. They used the ore, which had been very nicely squared off by the blasting, to build foundations for their houses and fireplaces and bread ovens. They used the sandy leftovers from the four processing mills that were on the reservation to mix cement, and it got a reputation for making really nice, smooth cement. So they used it for floors that they slept directly on and for stucco walls. So they brought this stuff into their daily lives, into their homes. So Navajo are making homes out of uranium and other related, other other radioactive uh, materials. Yeah. Yeah, in essence, they were living in another mine. Meanwhile, of course, the uh, largely white uranium towns in Colorado, like Grand Junction, are getting cleaned up. Right. And a lot of that was a matter of having political clout. Grand Junction had a processing mill in town. And when it was realized that people had been coming in and taking some of the sand to use in construction, the federal government spent $250 million taking the contaminated stuff out of thousands of homes there. They went house to house where they dug up contaminated soil. They would replace the trees and the grass. But at the same time, Navajos were actually using the material to put it into their homes. Your series of articles uh, runs in the Los Angeles Times, what, in 2006? And some wheels began to turn after that. Tell us what happened. One thing that happened was that Congressman Henry Waxman read the series and 
he thought that actually that other members of Congress who had Navajo constituents might do something, but nothing much happened. And part of that is there isn't anybody who kind of represents the whole reservation. And so Waxman decided after a while that he was going to do something about it because he found it embarrassing, the situation. Now, at this time, Congressman Waxman, who's a Democrat from California, is what, chairing the House Oversight Committee? Oh, yeah, with the Oversight Committee. And so he basically, his jurisdiction was, as he put it, everything. They had a hearing. For the first time, they brought a number of federal agencies to account together. It was hard to point fingers when the others were there. But he did something that was pretty unusual. He also followed up. After the hearing, he has since continued to bring these people together for meetings, including the Navajo tribe there and the various agencies. And he has pushed them to come up with a five-year multi-agency cleanup plan which probably won't do the whole job, but getting some momentum going. It's now in year two. I believe in your book you you say that that uh, Navajo EPA official, he had, what, a Geiger counter at this congressional hearing? Yeah, he brought the soil in, and they had had to inform the Capitol Police ahead of time. And he ran a Geiger counter over this container of material, and the noise of the clicks just filled the room. The police immediately took it and got it out of there. <laughs> Time to go. (laughs) Time to go. And so after Congressman Waxman's hearings and your story, I gather slowly some of these radioactive homes where there's, what, now a fourth generation of Navajo sleeping in, um, they're getting cleaned up? Yeah. I had the pleasure last fall of tagging along with someone from the U.S. EPA and the Navajo EPA as they were giving out keys to new safe homes to people whose contaminated houses had been knocked down. And they were pretty shocked people to find that, you know, something was actually happening after all this time. It was bittersweet, though, because people had died in the meantime. Judy, thanks for taking the time with me today. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Living on Earth, Steve Kerwood and author Judy Pasternak. Her new book is Yellow Dirt, an American story of a poisoned land and a people betrayed. A team of five young people from five continents were given five magic rings. With their powers combined, these kids summoned Earth's greatest champion, Captain Planet. The eco-cartoon hero and his team of planeteers first took to the airwaves 20 years ago, inspiring a generation of TV viewers to do no less than save the planet. Living on Earth and Planet Harmony's Ike Sriskandaraja watched back then and has our story now. In 1990, NBC News Today announced a new superhero. Teachers and parents often look at Saturday morning television as a kid's wasteland full of cartoon garbage and sugar cereal ads. Well, tomorrow morning, there'll be a new TV character trying to change that. And his name was Captain Planet. I am Captain Planet! Captain Planet was the brainchild of Ted Turner. The ecological warnings of the Global 2000 report commissioned by President Carter, spurred Turner to beef up Turner Broadcasting's environmental programming. Most of the experts say if we don't change things, uh, the planet will be pretty well uninhabitable in another 30 or 40 years. 
Turner hired TV producer Barbara Pyle to sound the alarm. He wanted me to teach children about the facts of the Global 2000 study. I mean, go figure. Ted Turner called me into his office and he said, Captain Planet. I said, Ted, you know, what is Captain Planet? And he said, that is your problem. I am Captain Planet. Captain Planet, he's a hero. So Barbara and her team dreamt up an elemental warrior in league with five kids with magic rings. If you think of Captain Planet as a religion, <laughs> then this would be the creation myth, the creation story. The pilot episode lays out the themes. It begins with eco-villain, oil-hungry, hoggish Greedley, voiced by Ed Asner. With this giant land blaster, I'll be able to drill for oil anywhere. Well, basically, we, they cracked the ocean floor. So anyway, Gaia is on a uh, is taking a nap, and she's woken up with this oil dripping onto her forehead. Gaia is the spirit of the earth, trying to sleep in her subterranean palace. My goodness, can't the spirit of earth take a little nap? Get a little nap, she said, and then she flicks on her monitors, boom, and there they are, with, she's seeing all the travesties that are going on on the planet today. I guess I napped too long, but how much damage could they do in a century? Exhaust from the cars, the pollution in the rivers, ever you name it. You know, it's like best B-roll of our environmental disasters. It's worse than I thought. Earth is dying. Only it's animated, of course. And um, she said, it's time for the rings. So she tosses out the rings. I need young people to help now, starting with five very special kids from five corners of the globe. Each ring held the power to control one natural element. From Africa, Kwame. Kwame could move Earth. From Asia, Guy. Guy could control water. From North America, Wheeler. Wheeler shoots fire from the soviet union linka linka harnessed the wind and from south america mati mati has the power of heart all right let me get this straight your name is gaia and you're the spirit of the earth and you brought us here to help you save earth from being ruined yes that's about the size of it gaia tells the kids the planeteers, they must work together to do that. We must do as Gaia advised. We must combine our powers. Let's do it! So the newly formed team takes Gaia's advice to clean up Greedley's oil spill. Boom! There's Captain Planet. By your powers combined, I am Captain Planet! What Captain Planet truly is, is a metaphor for teamwork. He doesn't exist without the planeteers. The first order of business is to put all this oil back where it came from. He does the heavy work, and he caps it, you know, and then he says, goodbye to the planeteers. My work here is done, but yours is just beginning, planeteers. And remember, the power is yours. For six seasons, that was the slogan that kids have the power to change the world. This is one of the few things that really talks to kids about what they can do. That's Whoopi Goldberg, the voice of Gaia. We won't know what the outcome of this is until these kids grow up. Now that generation, the millennials, have graduated from Saturday morning cartoons and college. Barbara Pyle. That's actually, that group of young people is the largest demographic bulge in the history of our species on this planet. And they are aging into their power years. She says about half of the 80 million millennials in the U.S. saw the show, as well as fans in nearly 100 other countries. 
Now there's an international network of planeteers who care about the environment. Hola, soy Alejandra, soy de Guatemala. Este programa me encanta y soy una planetaria porque estoy muy interesada en el medio ambiente y de las cosas que pasan en el ecosistema. Hi, my name's Shona and I'm from the north of Scotland, Inverness. I think Captain Planet was ahead of his time. Um, I think now the world is ready to pay a little bit more attention to conservation. The global problems Captain Planet fought, pollution, waste, and oil spills, are still with us. And so is Captain Planet. He lives forever in reruns. For Living on Earth and Planet Harmony, I'm Aixrys Kandaraja. For more on the international network of planeteers, visit MyPlanetHarmony.com. Our sister program, Planet Harmony, welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. It's the thing to do. On the next Living on Earth, coal companies threaten to blow up a piece of mining history. It's worse than burying it. It's just completely obliterating, done away with it altogether. They don't want you to know how terrible the coal companies treated the families who lived in this area. And that's what we're looking at here. The battle to save the battlefield on Blair Mountain, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week at the South Pole. Canada Glacier is small as glaciers go, and despite the fact that it's made of ice, it's technically a desert. It's so dry, it only gets about four inches of snow a year. Douglas Quinn recorded the sound of cracking ice on Canada Glacier for the wildsanctuary.com CD, Antarctica. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Valinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Sriskandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Nora Doyle Burr and Hannah Lyles. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, 
organic yogurt, and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.